God who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. Lord, teach us to pray. It's an interesting request, isn't it? Lord, teach us to pray. It sounds simple enough to begin with. Some of the disciples probably see that Jesus is praying himself. The text says he's praying in a certain place, and they can probably see the peace that he pulls from his relationship with God, from his prayer life. And certainly they can see the power that he pulls from that prayer life as well. And so they want, in some way, to share in that peace and to share in that power, and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. It sounds like a simple request. It's not, really. Who was it that taught you to pray? Do you remember? This text always makes me think about the people who taught me to pray. First, it was my parents, and and mostly my mother, if I'm honest. My mom, every night, would make sure that we hit our knees next to my bed, and she would fold my little hands. And in French, we would list off this huge list of litanies, and then say the Lord's Prayer. Those are big words for a little kid, if we're honest. I'm not sure all of us really stop to think about them. They're big words for all of us, but especially for a little kid with hands folded, not entirely sure what they mean. There were other people later in my life that taught me a little bit more about what prayer is, that it's not just sort of the the rote kind of memorized words that we say, like I think the Lord's Prayer often is for us, but actually that there's many different ways to pray and lots of different traditions and that prayer actually can be a little more of a sort of constant daily conversation. That we can kind of always be in touch with God and praying for the people around us and the people we love and kind of track through the day that way. And there were other people who taught me that. But the thing that taught me maybe the most was not a person. It was a thing that we call CPE. It involves a lot of people. CPE, actually, I wish Meg was here because she hasn't done it yet and she's going to have to. CPE is a gate that stands looming before all seminarians. It stands for clinical pastoral education. And everyone who is ordained in the Episcopal Church has to do CPE. And there's a couple of different ways to do it now. Um, But when I did it, the, the sort of, and still is the most traditional sort of standard way to do it, is you spend three months in a hospital as a student chaplain full time. You're put in a group of other student chaplains, and together you are sort of charged with the care of an entire hospital for the whole summer. So all the patients and their families and the staff and each other, which is not easy. And CPE is sort of designed to push your buttons, and it does. It pulls out so much of your family history and all of the ways that you interact with people, and of course there's good conflict in the group too. But the biggest button for me was the button of prayer. Like some of you, I am a cradle Episcopalian, so my favorite way to pray is in this book, this red book that's in front of all of you. This is my favorite tool for prayer. And when I got to CPE, one of the first things my supervisor said to all the Episcopalians, and she thought she was really funny, was that we don't get to use that book at all. Not at all. She said, instead, we're supposed to walk into the room and pray the patient's prayer. 
That's terrifying. What does that even mean, pray the patient's prayer? How am I supposed to do that? So I'm going to change their names, but I'm going to tell you two stories about two people that taught me a little bit about what that meant. And the first one I'm going to call Stella, who was a young um, Latina woman who was Pentecostal, and she had just been diagnosed with a very, very aggressive form of cancer. And the first time I was in her room, she told me that she thought that the cancer was a punishment, that God was testing her and challenging her and that she was being punished for having done something wrong. Now, in our tradition, we don't believe in a God like that. I believe, and we as a broad, as a broad tradition, believe that God is good all the time, no matter what. And if God is good all the time, then the bad stuff can't come from God. It comes from the system we've built that is flawed and human and broken and sinful, but it doesn't actually come from God. God doesn't throw things at us like that to punish us or test us or challenge us. And so all I wanted to do was tell her that I didn't believe that that was true, that God wouldn't do that to her. God loved her. God wouldn't, God wouldn't do that. And how arrogant would it have been for me to take that away from her? Her faith, her understanding, her relationship with God. No matter how much I thought I was right or wanted to fix it, taking that away would have been wrong. And so instead, when I prayed with Stella, what we learned, what I learned to pray for was her strengthening, her healing, her forgiveness. And then there was this kid that I loved. His, I'll call him Kevin. Kevin grew up in Bridgeport, and he had just graduated from high school. He, was, he had a full ride to Kent State to go play basketball, and he just had to get through the summer. But I saw him three times that summer with gunshot wounds because he couldn't get himself out of the gang violence in Bridgeport. And when I sat with him, it was so clear. He said to me so many times, God just doesn't care about me. God cares about lots of other people, but not me. I, don't, I never had all the things that everybody else has because God just doesn't care. And I could have sat there from that moment to this one for the last 11 years saying, God loves you more than you can imagine, and it wouldn't have mattered. What mattered was me sort of shutting up and being the adult that was interested, choosing kindness and compassion and choosing to sort of bring God into the room in that way instead of trying to explain why he was wrong. In both those cases, what I had to learn was sort of to get myself out of the way and the gift of that time was that God still showed up. Even though we disagreed on so many things, maybe even on the most important thing, we disagreed on who God fundamentally is. And still in the midst of that room, God showed up. Because between us, there was no boundary, no claim of who was right and who was wrong, just compassion and kindness and sort of the humanity that we all share, that God breathes into each one of us. In the Gospel this morning, we have the text of the Lord's Prayer. And if you look at it, you can see that we've added some words to it over time, but the core that Jesus gives us this morning is right there. And it's a pretty impressive prayer. 
if you look at it. I mean, we do say it all the time. We're going to say it again in a couple of minutes. It's sort of rote for a lot of us. If you, like me, have said this almost every day of your life, you sort of know the words and it sort of trips off. And every once in a while, you have to remind yourself that you're actually praying instead of just saying the words. But they're pretty impressive words. And what they do is tell us how to live. It's funny, actually, that we call it the Lord's Prayer. Because it's not really. These certainly are not the words that Jesus uses to pray consistently, but they are the words that Jesus wants us to use to pray consistently. And they set for us a little bit of a guide about how to live. It's more the world's prayer than the Lord's prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. When we hallow something, we make it holy, we set it aside, we call it sacred. So the imagery there is that even, even God's name, when we say it, when we pray, should be so holy and reverent for us. So that there's really nothing in life that's more important than that relationship. That's why we start there. Sort of the, the primal relationship, the primacy of God in our life, the top of the list, the, the most important priority. The next one is the one that I'm, honestly, it, it scares me just a little bit. When was the last time you considered the fact that you're praying for God's kingdom to come? Your kingdom come. That's not just someday, that's right now. The Greek is really clear there. We are praying presently, urgently for God to show up right now. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Notice that's an us. That is a corporate prayer for a collective whole. That is still about the kingdom. It's not give me this day my daily bread so that I might survive. It's give us this day, all of us the things we need to survive, the ways in which we can live into the kingdom, the kingdom we hope is coming. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us. Have you forgiven everyone who's indebted to you? Everyone. Because it's very clear in the text that our forgiveness is tied up in whether or not we can forgive everyone indebted to us. That means we let go of all the things we sort of tally and keep track of in our heads, the big things, the small things, the people who have sort of wounded our pride and the people who have hurt us deeply, everyone. And do not bring us into the time of trial, which can be interpreted a lot of ways. It could, could refer to the end times that we'd like not to see, could be about suffering, could be an ask for courage to live so well now in the world that we have that we don't have to see the time of trial, the place of trial. And then we can't miss, I don't think, even though that's technically where the prayer ends, Jesus hits the disciples then right away with this invitation to ask for what you want. It's very clear. There's no promise that we're going to get exactly what we want or get it exactly when we want it. The text is very clear to say that if you ask, you will receive something, something that's better for you maybe than what you're asking for, something that's better for you maybe than what you're imagining, but something. And you're invited to ask. And that's important. I think sometimes in all of our prayer lives, we feel a little selfish, like we shouldn't ask for something that we want, but here Jesus is literally saying, 
ask me for what you want. You may not get it, but ask me for what you want, and I will shower blessings on you that are better than what you've asked for. That's a pretty good promise. So the invitation of the gospel this morning, I think, is to see this prayer and this invitation to ask as a deeper invitation to really sort of spend our lives praying God's prayer, praying the world's prayer, that invites us to put aside the things we think we're right about, that invites us to put aside the things we think other people owe us, that invites us to put aside the things that isolate us, make us feel further away from other people, and instead to pray the world's prayer, and to believe that in doing so, we sort of help bring about the kingdom. What would it be like if all of us went out into the world not trying to fix anything or change anyone's mind, but just sort of sat next to them and loved them? My job in those rooms was not to teach or convert or make anyone think anything they didn't already think. It was to sit in the mess that was described by the person I was sitting with and not leave them alone in it. I didn't get to rename it. I didn't get to sweep it up. I was supposed to sit there with them in it and let them tell me what they saw. What would it be like if we went out into the world and did the same thing and sat with people and let go of the places where we think we're right and let go of our privilege that allows us to think we can fix it? What if we just went and chose compassion and kindness and allowed God to enter into that, even with people we disagree with profoundly. The invitation of this text this morning is to take seriously the words that Jesus gives us, to imagine that, like all good prayer, if we say it enough, if we mean it enough, it will take root in us, it will shape what we believe, and ultimately it will shape how we live. What does it mean for us to pray for the kingdom to come? What does it ask of us if we really believe that that is a, a prayer that Jesus calls us to make? I invite you this morning to think of the people who taught you to pray. And before you pray for anything else, give thanks for them and for the heritage that that is. And then consider what it means for you to say these words. Consider the people that are indebted to you that you have yet to forgive. Consider the fact that in our tradition we believe God is all good all the time and that the kingdom is a place where there are no barriers between us and others, no barriers that limit love. And then consider that as part of praying that the kingdom might come, it is your work to build it. Lord, teach us to pray. Amen. Please stand as we affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 